Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in Him. We are here in Galatians chapter 3. We are going to read now verses 1 through 14, and then we will ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. So if you will, please look here at verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, we ask your blessing on our time together now. We ask specifically that that you will remind us just this morning as we, we just work through your word that we cannot live by the flesh. We cannot live in our own power and in our own efforts and in our own accomplishments. We have to live by faith. This is what you have called us to from, from the beginning of time, and so may we be committed to it. Convict us for our, our foolishness. Show us what it means to live by faith this morning, we ask. And may we go out of here at the end of this time committed to living in you, Jesus. We ask all of this in your name. Amen. How many of you are familiar with the term hermeneutics? Raise your hand. You've heard the word hermeneutics somewhere, anywhere before. Okay, put your hands down. I was pretty sure there'd be a decent number of you who would be familiar. But for those of you who are not, hermeneutics is a term used to refer to the philosophy and methodology of interpretation, particularly the interpretation of biblical text. But note that it doesn't just apply to Scripture. It applies to both the why and the how of interpretation in in regards to all forms of human communication. So, for example, if I were to say to you that I want to go to the store to buy bread, I just want you to stop and think for a moment how such a seemingly simple statement or idea, all all the stuff that goes into that. For example, just on the mechanic side, how do we get an idea from our own minds into the minds of other people? So in this example, I've got this idea that 
I'm wanting bread, and apparently I also have a desire to let you know that I want to go buy some bread. And so instantly electrical impulses are sent from my brain down to my lungs, which forces air up and over my vocal cords, my mouth, my jaw, my tongue, my lips all join in on that effort, and I create sounds, right, vibrations that are going to physically move through the air, however many feet away I am from you in this room right now, it's going to travel through the air, it's going to hit your eardrum, at which point your eardrum is going to vibrate with those vibrations, and it is going to begin sending electrical signals up to your, your uh, brain, which you will then take and interpret and through a, something we called language, so that the idea that started up here milliseconds ago ended up in your brain as well. If you stop and think about just the mechanics of communication alone, it actually is quite impressive and amazing uh, it, if there was no other reason to deny something like evolution, that the world was created by chance, that alone should be enough. But, but remember, that's just the mechanics of it all. Please note that once the idea gets in your brain, you still have work to do, right, with whatever I have sent your way. You still have to interpret it. You have to understand both why you're going to take it to mean a certain thing and then how you're going to interpret it in that way. And these are the questions of hermeneutics. In this example, my assumption is that you will interpret my words literally, though, because that's just what makes sense in the context, right, that you are assuming that what I want to do is I want to travel to a place of commerce in order to engage in a financial transaction where I'm going to turn over money in exchange for a baked good that we call bread. That this is how you're going to understand what I have said. And conversely then, you will not take what I said to mean that I want to go play basketball for the ODU Monarchs or that I intend to become an opera singer or that you now have my permission to make a jello mold out of Jordan's head, right? You're in the shape of Jordan's head, I should say, not out of it. That would be weird. Uh, because if you were to interpret my statement in any of those three ways or in any other way for that matter, we would think you're crazy, right? Because clearly what I said did not mean any of those things. This is hermeneutics. The philosophy, that's the why question, and the methodology, that's the how question of interpretation, but especially interpretation of biblical text. And that is where the word is most normally used to refer to the philosophy and methodology of interpreting scripture. And that is probably where the vast majority of you in this room have heard that word used in, a past, in the past. But what a lot of people don't understand, though, is that when you're talking about interpreting scripture, there's actually two types of hermeneutics that are going on simultaneously. First, you have what I would call micro-hermeneutics. And this is the process that I just used as my example a moment ago, where you are sitting down to scripture and you are looking at individual words and sentences and paragraphs and ideas, and you're just trying to understand what those words and sentences and paragraphs and ideas mean. This is what I do on a weekly basis, right? I study and I work to try to understand the text of Scripture correctly so that I can stand up here and say to you, this is what Paul means, or this is what Moses means. This is what we hopefully are always trying to do as we interpret Scripture, to understand what the author wanted and to, to see it and say it the same exact way. I call this micro-hermeneutics, the, the why and how of interpretation at the, the word or paragraph level. But there is also something that I would refer to as a macro-hermeneutic that is at work simultaneous to that one, 
And this one helps me understand the why and how of text interpretation across the entire story of Scripture. In other words, why has God chosen to do the things he has chosen to do in Scripture? And how then should I understand the, and I'm talking big things here, how should I understand them as they relate to all the other things that are going on in Scripture? You go, Stacey, that didn't really help me or clarify anything for me. Could you maybe give me an example? Sure. Let's use, oh, I don't know, off the top of my head, not planned all week, the example of Israel and the Old Testament law, okay? Just randomly chosen out of nowhere. Please recognize that God did not have to give Israel the law. You understand that? Like, he didn't have to. No one had a gun to God's head and said, listen, this is the way the story has to go. You have to give them the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai and then all the other 603 commands of Scripture, 613 total. Otherwise, the world won't work. He, he didn't have to do that. There are untold millions of things, no doubt, that God could have done that he chose not to do. So the question for me is, Why? Why did he choose to do that? Why did he choose to give them the Old Testament law? Well, I am not going to answer that question for you today because Paul is going to answer it a little later on in chapter 3, and we'll wait until then to answer it. Let's talk more, though, about the how question for a moment. How are we supposed to understand, then, this thing we call the law? How does it fit in the overall story of God's plan and what he's doing? And how does it relate to, first, the, the Israelites in their Old Testament context, but then second, and I would say in some ways more important now for us, how does it relate to us today? What are we supposed to be doing with the law? How am I supposed to understand that thing and make it fit? This is, this is the work of macro hermeneutics, trying to answer both the why and the how of the interpretation of how bigger things and bigger ideas and bigger concepts fit into the larger story of what God is doing in this world. And here in verses 5 to 14, Paul is giving us a lesson in macro hermeneutics. He is taking major components of the Old Testament story and context, and he is reinterpreting, and I put this in quotes only because I'm saying that from the Jewish perspective, he is reinterpreting them through the lens of the gospel of faith in Jesus Christ. The importance and centrality of faith is the macro hermeneutic for Paul here in these verses. And I just want you to think through, remember now, the things he has reinterpreted because of this lens of faith up to this point. He has reinterpreted the nature of Abraham's salvation, right? Salvation for Abraham did not come because he was keeping the law, because he was circumcised, or any other of the clearly Jewish things that they would have thought of. He was justified by faith. Because he believed. Uh, he's also reinterpreted the nature of being a son of Abraham. It's not just about being a biological descendant of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob or by being a part of the nation of Israel. He says here in Galatians 3, if you have faith like Abraham, you then are a son of Abraham. And as we ended last time here in verse 9, we saw that he has also reinterpreted the nature of who will receive the blessing promised to Abraham. And what he's saying here in verse 9 is that it's not just Jews who will receive this blessing, who will be blessed. It is anyone and everyone who is of faith. But I want to come back now to this idea, and I want to rethink for a moment 
the significance of one particular word here, because it's this one particular word that I think is going to send him down his next path of reinterpretation through that macro hermeneutic of faith, and it's this word here, blessed. Now, we've been talking about blessing a little bit over the last few weeks as we've been studying particularly Abraham uh, here in the text, and certainly it is correct to do so. As we saw in uh, Genesis 12, In Genesis 13, God had clearly promised to bless Abraham, right? He had said to him that he was going to bless him, make his name great. And he also promised that all of the families on the earth would be blessed through him. And from a Jewish perspective, when they read that and heard that, they just assumed that that meant through them, through the nation of Israel, and through their way of life that God had given them what we call the Old Testament law. But I would remind us for just a moment that since the larger context of Galatians is not the the Galatians struggling with how to think about Abraham specifically, it's, it's how they thought about the law as a whole, I think we need to broaden our understanding or expand our understanding of blessing a little bit for a moment to try to see it like they did. And to do that, I would just remind us, you don't have to turn there, and I'm not going to put it behind, behind me on the screen, I would just remind us of this weird little scene that happens at the very end of the Torah. I mean, right at the end of Moses' life, right at the end of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28, there's this scene that unfolds that is unique in the first five books of Scripture. God takes half the children of Israel and puts them on one mountain. And he takes half, the other half of the children of Israel and he puts them on another mountain. And then he begins to talk to them about what it's going to look like living under this law. And I'm just going to read you a little bit of this because I want you to see the choice that they are presented with there in those two chapters. First, they're presented with the choice of blessing. Listen as I read Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 1. Moses writes, And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in. And blessed shall you be when you go out. And then he just keeps going with blessing and blessing and blessing. And what's important to understand here is that all of those blessings that he's speaking of are directly tied to what? To them obeying the law. Okay. You get to, uh, excuse me, verse 15, chapter 28, and Moses now turns. He says, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. And then he just keeps going with a bunch of other curses. Curses, again, related to what? Not keeping the law. Blessings for keeping the law on one hand, cursings for not keeping the law on the other. Now, pop quiz. 
okay? If you're not prepared, you didn't study, I'm going to see how you do with the question here. Two questions, actually, and uh, it's okay. You can answer this one out loud. Question number one, how do you think most Jews viewed themselves as being blessed or cursed? Answer? Blessed. Very good. Okay. They, they viewed themselves as being blessed because, as you probably well know at this point, they saw themselves as keeping the law. Excellent. One for one. Second, how then do you think most Jews viewed the Gentiles as being blessed or cursed? Cursed. Oh, man, you guys are two for two. You have figured this out very well, good listeners and good students. Right. They were cursed because they had not kept the law. And yet now, with that context in mind, I want you to think again about what he says here in verse 9, that everyone can be blessed. Not because they keep the law, but because they have faith. And like so many of the other things that Paul has shown them along the way here, I have no doubt that this would be mind-blowing from a Jewish perspective because it doesn't fit with how they understand the world. But get ready for this because not only have they misunderstood who is blessed and why, they have also misunderstood who is cursed and why. In verse 10 now, Paul says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. And the key idea here that's being communicated to us by our translators is the idea of them relying on something. And you say, well, what does that mean exactly? Or what is Paul talking about? What are they relying on the law for? Well, I think you have to look ahead to verse 11 to get the answer to that, where he says that it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. So what I think he's talking about here is salvation. He's like, Abraham couldn't rely on the law for salvation. It was faith alone. Hey, guess what? No one else can rely on the law for salvation either. I think this is the idea. So then, if you are relying on the law for your justification before God, you, sir, or you, ma'am, you are under a curse. And the question now is, why would Paul say this? Why would he say such a thing that seems so against what they would understand? Why, you know, why are those who remain under the laws, in the case of the Jews, why are they cursed? Or why are those maybe who want to go back to the law, like the Galatians, why would they be pursuing the curse? Well, he answers it from a surprising source. He says, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, again, a little quick pop quiz. Does anyone want to go out on a limb now perhaps and guess where that particular reference is found? Something maybe I've already mentioned up to this point? Deuteronomy verses 20, or chapters 27 and 28. This is the lead-in idea to the sections I just read to you a moment ago. Cursed be anyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Um... Rather than viewing and using that scene and that passage and these ideas in Deuteronomy uh, 27 and 28 in the way that Jews would typically view and use them, Paul reinterprets them as being a proof of the law's inability to save. If you do not do everything that the law requires, then you are cursed. Now, 
Hold that thought for a moment, and let's move here to verse 11. He says then, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Oh, really, Paul? That's, that's evident? I'm not sure that everyone would understand it that way. Well, to Paul, it's evident, and he quotes two passages of Scripture here to illustrate and defend his interpretation. First, he quotes from a book that I know so many of us know so well, the book of Habakkuk, right? It's the number one book. All of you have got life verses from the book of Habakkuk. You know, the reality is, unless you're doing a through-the-year reading plan, you probably read the, the book of Habakkuk about once every never, right? It just never... You're never going to go there. Even if your reading plan is the old, like, flip and point method, if you flip and point to Habakkuk, you're like, eh, eh. <laughs> redo it. Okay, good. Psalms. Yes. That's where I wanted to be. Um, we, we never go here, right? Yet this is where Paul turns to make his point. He quotes a single line from chapter 2, verse 4, part of Yahweh's message to the prophet, where Yahweh says that the righteous shall live by faith. Now, let's be very clear on something. What does he mean when he says here that the righteous shall live by faith? Because sometimes we use that phrase to talk about how people maybe have to live when, when life is difficult or when there's suffering or problems or uncertainty. You just don't know. You know sometimes you just got to live by faith, right? We say those words, we think that, and it's good and right. That's totally fine. Is that what he means here that, you know, this is kind of a daily exercise of faith in the in the teeth of uncertainty or, or suffering? Well, no, I don't think so. Both in the context of Habakkuk and in Galatians, I think the meaning is clear. He is talking about justification before God. He's talking about salvation. When he says life, he means eternal life. You want to understand how you get life, real life? It's got to, it's got to come by faith. In other words, the idea of salvation by faith that is as early on, shows up as early on in Scripture as Abraham, it shows up as late as Habakkuk too. <laughs> the idea doesn't change throughout the course of Scripture. Salvation is by faith, and this is the first passage he uses to illustrate and defend his interpretation. Second, he quotes from another one of those books that we often turn to for encouragement in times of trouble, Leviticus, right? Again, back to the Bible reading and a year plan, we always start off so strong, and like Genesis is easy, and the early part of, of January is great, and then Exodus starts off fine, and then Exodus gets tough, and by the time you get to Leviticus, you're like, <laughs> like dying, right? I, I'm that way, maybe you're not, but Leviticus can be hard. But this is where he, where he turns, and what he quotes here in verse 12, he says, the law is not of faith. It's just not. Rather, and here's the quote, the one who does them shall live by them. This is from Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. Now, I have tried and failed repeatedly over the past few weeks. To, as I'm reading the, the, the scripture passage at the beginning, I have tried to inflect that correctly in order to communicate the meaning, but I've often, I'll get into reading and I just lose my inflection thoughts and I, it goes away. So let me try to say it right now correctly and see if this helps you with a little bit of understanding. The one who does them shall live by them. Can you hear the emphasis here? If you're going to live, if you're going to do this, you're going to live by that. That thing over there. And what's the them? Of course, the them here is the law. Well, well let's, let's, try to, let's try to make sense of what Paul is doing by, by doing a little 
uh, comparison or contrasting of these two quotes because they're, they're important and their similarities and or differences will, will help bring some things to light. So what, what's the same or what's different? Well, first, they both start with the word the. Excellent work. You're all very, very good students, all right? But that word isn't important. What is important is that it's pointing to, in both cases, a particular group of people. In the first quote, it's referring to a group identified here as being the righteous. In the second quote, it is referring to a group of people who do, they do the law. That's what the them is pointing back to. These are people who are committed to the law. They are pursuing the law. They do the law. Well, notice next another similarity. Both groups are going to live by something. And since he uses it one way in one quote, I think we need to understand it the same way in the other quote, that these are two different ways of pursuing justification. And what are these ways of pursuing it, these things that you're going to live by? Well, the first group finds life through faith. The second group, though, is trying to find their life, their salvation through the law. In other words, what Paul is proving here is that these are two completely different systems of pursuing justification before God. Completely different. You, you either are going to choose to live by faith or you are going to try to live by the law. Either you're going to find it in faith or you're going to find it in the law, but you will not find it in both. In fact, if we go back now to verse 10, what do you find if you try to find your justification through the law? You find a curse. You don't find blessing. That's what you wanted, but you don't, you don't find blessing. You find a curse. And, and why are those who are under the law cursed? Well, because didn't, didn't Moses say that I, I, you know, living by the law and obeying it would lead to blessing? He sure did say that. But did he mean by that the blessing of salvation? No. He did not. There was blessing in obeying the law, but not in relation to salvation, to justification, to eternal life, these things that the, these followers of the law are trying to find in it. And I'll give you two reasons why the law could not provide that salvation. First, and this is something we will cover more later on in chapter 3, so I'll say very little about it now. It's because the law was never meant to bring salvation. It wasn't its purpose. If you look at the Old Testament law, not that you, but if someone, anyone, looks at the Old Testament law and goes, this, this is how I can be justified before God, they're barking up the wrong tree. It was never the purpose. It was never the intention of the law to bring you salvation. More on that later on. Second, and flowing out of that, the law could never be a source of salvation because no one can keep it perfectly. Just can't. And, and God never thought or intended that the people would keep it perfectly. That is why I think, at least partially, he gave them the sacrificial system. What is the point of the sacrificial system if they can keep it? If they can keep the law, they will never transgress it. They'll never need to make atonement for what they've done wrong. The whole purpose of the sacrificial system assumes that they can't. 
You understand that? There's no need for sacrifice if it can be kept. But if it can't be kept, then you're going to have, you got to have something, some kind of response. He gives it to them because they can't. And the fact that they can't is at least part of the reason why they are cursed. He says it again here in verse 10. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. If you could keep it perfectly, if, if it was possible and it wasn't, then maybe, maybe then it could bring you salvation, even though it wasn't its purpose. Just maybe for the sake of argument, I'll let it be so. But you can't. You can't do it. No way to use it for salvation back then, and there is definitely no way to use it for salvation now that Christ has come and done away with that system. And so from every possible angle we look at it, that thing, the law, just will not and cannot work for salvation in the way that the Galatians want it to. And if they try to remain under it or go back to it, they're going to find a curse. Thomas Schreiner, one of the commentators I enjoy reading in Galatians, he says it like this. Righteousness is not by the law, for the law requires perfect obedience. Faith, however, looks to what God has done in Christ for salvation, relying on God's work, rather than one's own. And, and this is what is so hard for us, I think, in this debate. Because, you know, you and I, we're reading this, and we're like, you're probably sick of hearing about the Jewish perspective at this point. But you've got to understand it. I've got to drive that thing home, because if you don't understand how they looked at it, you're not going to understand the whole letter to the Galatians, okay? So bear with me in that. But I, I would remind you that you and I aren't far off of where the Galatians are, at least in terms of our heart. Because it is just as hard for us to live by faith as it was for them, particularly for those of us in this room who, like me, feel so often weak in faith. And I don't say that in any way to like, I don't know, come across as like relatable or, or blowing smoke at you or anything. Like that. I mean, like sincerely, I, when it comes to like being weak in faith, I don't feel like just a client. I feel like the president of the club sometimes. And, and this is true of salvation. I've told you this before. That to this day, one of the things I have continued to struggle with so much is wanting to build a righteousness of my own before God. That's like a constant daily struggle for me to, to think that I can somehow live in such a way as to make God happy with me and accept me because of who I am. You know how frustrating that is in life? <laughs> to constantly fail at that? Because that's all we will ever do. All of our righteousness is as, what, filthy rags, we're told? To know that I can never, on my best day, please God the way he wants. And that I always have to rely on the righteousness of Christ. That is hard. I don't want to do it a lot of times. And I find days, and this is no exaggeration, I find days where I can do nothing more than just cry out to God and beg him to preserve me in the faith. Because it feels so weak at that moment. And for some of you in the room, you have no idea what that's like. It's just not even something you deal with. Okay, I'm, I'm happy for you, and I mean that. But a few of you in this room at least know what I'm talking about. Or some days you just, you feel like you're hanging on by a spider web that's about to break at any second. I would remind you that we cannot live by the works of the flesh, good or bad, that we have to cling in faith to Christ for salvation. Anything else is a curse. It leads to a curse. 
It's not just salvation that I struggle with that in. I find I struggle with it in every way. I mean, there are so many things in life that I want to control, you know? That is a a sin struggle of mine. It always has been. Wrongs that I want to right. Situations that I want to fix. Needs that I want to meet. And I'm not talking about bad things here in any way. I'm talking about good things. Maybe it's a change that I want to see happen in my own life or in the life of someone else. Maybe it's a, a, a pain or suffering that I want to I want to remove. Again, maybe it's in my life or in someone else's life. And you pray about these things and you ask God to do this or that and nothing. Complete and total silence from heaven. And it's at that moment that I feel like doing what Abraham did, to be quite honest with you. You We've been looking at Abraham in Genesis 15 of late. And this is the chapter where, of course, you know, God has given him all these promises and, and he's doubting, right? He is doubting in Genesis 15 and he's crying out to God, what will you do? I've got no one to be my heir. He wants a son. He needs a son for all the promises of God to work. And uh, God comes and gives him more promises and Abraham believes and it's counted to him for righteousness and everything's happy. Genesis 15. What comes in Genesis 16? Abraham and Hagar. Now, make sure you understand that story correctly, because if you don't understand it in the larger context of 15 and what came before it, you won't get 16. He needs a son. He doesn't have a son. <laughs> and after exercising great faith in 15, Sarah comes up and is like, hey, we still don't have a son. I got an idea. Here's Hagar. And I want you to think about what he gets out of that. He, Hagar could have had a daughter. And a daughter would have helped him not at all. A daughter would not have been the answer to the prayer. He gets what he wants to a T. A son, his own son, his own flesh and blood through Sarah, or through Hagar, excuse me. Exactly what he wants, just not in the way God had intended it. He did it because he could. Did he get what he really wanted out of that? And I feel that way sometimes, like, God, if you're not going to do what I want, when I want, and how I want, well, I'll just do it, right? If you won't meet the need, I'll find a way to meet it. I'll work harder, fight more, I'll do whatever I have to do, I will make it happen. If you won't remove the pain and suffering, well, then I'll do it. I'll go run, I'll escape, I'll replace it, I'll do something. If you won't take care of the situation, I will find a way to make it happen because I can. And you know what? Sometimes I can. I get exactly what I want to a T. Let me remind you, as your friend and pastor, that never works out in the end. Never. Even if you get what you want to a T, God is not the kind of God who allows his plans to be thwarted or replaced by our actions. That is called acting in the flesh. That is relying in yourself and your choices and your wisdom. This is us saying to God that we know what is best for us and telling him that we neither need nor want him. This is not living by faith. The life of blessing, and I use the word life there to refer both to eternal life and to temporal life, life today, 
The life of blessing is the life of faith, relying on him, his works, his timing, his protection, his fulfillment, his promises, his joy, his happiness, his wisdom, his riches, all of it. You want to live a life of faith? It's going to put you in a hard spot. And things may not always be happy. And you might have a lot of pain. And you might have a lot of unfulfilled dreams and desires. God never promised you you would be happy. Never. But if you try to act outside of faith, and, and it's not going to work out, even if you get what you want to a T. And this is what I am realizing more and more that I struggle with. It is so hard for me to have faith and to just trust Him. Not the circumstances, not the answers that I want, just Him that he sees and knows and is always and only doing what is best. And so what I find is exactly what the Galatians needed. I need to live my life and view my life and view my circumstances through the macro hermeneutic of faith because anything else will lead me to a curse. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, it is so easy. It is so easy for us to live in the flesh to be like the Galatians and start with the Spirit, but think that somehow we can be perfected by, by the flesh. Our issue may not be the Torah and wanting to go back and put ourselves under this Jewish system, but we build all kinds of laws and, and fleshly ideas and systems every day in our own minds and heart. And we don't need to worry just about the Torah. We've got enough going on in our own lives. I, we are no different than them. And so we ask your protection today, Lord, that we do not go out from here and go live in the flesh and pursue the things that we want and, and solving the problems that we have purely in our own power, but rather that we wait on and rely on you. And I don't know how that always looks, and I, that's a whole other set of questions that I struggle with, but Lord, I know that you are always and only doing what is best for us. You have promised that you never give us stones. You always give us bread, you said. And so we rest in that. Help us to rest in that. Give us the faith to believe. Because apart from that, we have no hope. Jesus, we ask all of this in your name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.